as we make these choices to grow and heal from wherever we came from, whatever it looks like, substance use, abuse, chaos, um, whatever. And as we move away from that into the healing place, you know, being connected to a community that's right for us and understanding these healing processes um, mentally, physically, and finding resources to really, really help us to define in language what's going on with us and what healing looks like for us. I think that that's really powerful. Welcome to the Break the Chains, Find Your Flame podcast. My name is Steve Wopolinik. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and one of the founders of the Promethean Project. Our guests are people who have broke the chains of their limitations and found the strength of their potential. We offer their stories as inspiration and as guidance to help others navigate their quest to find their flame. Welcome back to the podcast, episode 73. As always, your host, Steve Opolinik. Our guest today is Michaela Malo. Michaela is a super awesome person. I was really excited to sit down with her. And we got to talk about many different things from her recovery from substance abuse, her complex trauma, which is not in the DSM-5 yet, but hopefully will be soon. We talk a lot about the DSM-5 and that specific situation to where she's at now she's a graduate student for clinical social work so we talk a lot about the ins and outs of that we also talk about her joys with motorcycles going to the beach hiking and being outside and having some solitude and also talk as always about trials and tribulations and challenges how she's overcome them and has turned them more towards her passions and redirecting towards community really excited for you all to hear Michaela today so without further ado here she is. In a world where humanity's potential is imprisoned and locked away, our only hope is to break the chains and find our flame. Welcome to the podcast. Our guest today is Michaela Malo. Welcome, Michaela. Thank you so much for, for coming today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So I'm really excited to speak to you because I have been a huge fan of yours just through social media. We met for Namaste Sober. We determined like six years ago, I think was the last time. And ever since then, I've seen, you know, your posts on social media and where you've gone in life and where you're aiming to go and chasing these passions and really inspiring to see that journey unfold and really excited for you for that. But I'm wondering if you could talk to the listeners a little bit and tell them a little bit about yourself and how you got here and what your passions are, you know, just like the simplest things ever. Right. (laughs) It's really broad to like, who am I? Yeah. So one thing that is a huge part of my identity is being in recovery from substance use. Right. And Mm -hmm. that's been about 17 years. Um, I got um, clean and sober in 2005. And so a huge part of my world, there's like before you get sober and then after you get sober and then in sobriety, it's like before you hit this milestone, before you uncover this, 
you know, hardship in your life. So um, I think, you know, being a huge part of my identity, being someone in recovery, um, you know, it took me a long time to be comfortable to, to explain to others and share like at the group level and like 12 step that um, I'm secular, that I'm a humanist, that I don't um, use the more common form of God or deity or higher power. And um, so that's been a huge part um, of my recovery and getting into Buddhist recovery, starting some Buddhist recovery groups with some friends in the Boston area has been a huge part of like the last 10 years of my life. And, um, you know, then going on to like Buddhist retreats and silent retreats through the former Against the Stream and Dharma punks, teachers and groups. Um, and all of that came to be, right? And then obviously like mental health care and getting into therapy and really understanding that. And, um, you know, in recovery at eight years sober when I was 34, uh, going to school and taking one class out of nowhere at a community college and now exactly 10 years later, um, being in grad school, yeah. you know, 10 years of, of school and now being in grad school. And, you know, what brought me to recovery was, um, you know, early childhood confusion, chaos, violence, addiction in the home. Um, I lost my father when I was six, he was murdered out in California. So that was a pretty tragic, you know, um, I guess they call it a victim of a violent death, even though right. I wasn't with him. And, um, you know, and what happened in my house growing up and what led me to a lot of mental health issues, which back in the, you know, 80s and 90s, you didn't go to the doctor, especially my socioeconomic group. And you certainly don't tell police, um, you don't talk to the man at all. And so when it came up to like substance use time, I was like, finally something that brings me relief, even though it brings chaos into my life, finally brings me some relief. And so that was like 13 until 27 when I got sober. And um, a lot of chaos, a lot of acting um, like my family, you know, I became the family that I wanted to run from. And so a huge part of my recovery was breaking the cycle, breaking the chains, <laughs> um, you know, breaking the cycle of um, tragedy, substance yeah. use, chaos, sadness, um, you know, and um, not feeling like I could ever become anything that belonged to me, that I was just going to be stuck in this world and I became, um, I have a very close relationship with my mom now, and there's been a lot of healing, thank goodness. But, you know, becoming like, you know, taking actions and making decisions like my mother, like my father, and becoming that person. Um, so um, there's before recovery, and then there's after recovery, and, you know, in recovery, lifelong learning, you know. Right. So I feel right now the most safest, the most stable. I have the most room to make cool choices, like starting to ride motorcycles last year. Um, that's all over my Facebook. <laughs> I'm really proud and excited and it brings me a ton of joy. And so I'm really in this place now because I've sought, you know, help um, from, you know, tons of modalities and because I've created a community and I'm part of communities, I have a lot of support to um, live my best life now, yeah. you know? So I'm really grateful. 
no, I, I don't know how you did that so succinctly, but you did, <laughs> did a fantastic job of that introduction. And I, and I think you've hit on some amazing points that I wanted to talk to you about. But before we get into that, I want to just thank you for being so open and sharing, because I know that even though you probably do this a lot in groups and recovery, it is still very, very much a blessing for me to be able to sit with you and, and share that. And, and I appreciate you for being open. My and pleasure to be, but that. it helps me a lot. And I feel like it helps other people too, to hear experiences because stories are really powerful. Yeah. Um, we have side note, we, we started a new thing in my nonprofit that we're working on is doing a publishing program so we can get people's stories out there. So it's called Ampersand Publishing. And, I, and I, it, awesome. it started because of that same thing. We did the Sigma is Curable yep. events last year to get more voices out there and kind of break down stigma. And we were thinking about, well, how can we reach more people and have different voices come up? And so we came up with the Ampersand Publishing Program, which we chose Ampersand because it was inclusive, right? This idea of and, and the, the idea behind it really is that drive of like, people have a ton of stuff to share and why don't we help them bridge that gap and try to get publishing of their work or their art or their creativity right. out there. And so instead of being a statistic, because, you know, we look at numbers all the time, we're reading articles all the time and it's right. like, here's the statistic, but the stories are really powerful and we're really missing that in our community because right. our culture has changed so much. So I love that. Yeah. Um, so that was a little aside, but, but <laughs> it just resonated with everything we're talking about, this narrative and this shift of really putting out there and, and creating and getting voices out there, I think is really important. Amazing. One of one of the things you mentioned that I think is really important that people don't really understand is that idea of what you brought up, that idea of, hey, I know this is destructive or chaotic, but it served me or it was serving me for a specific period of time or for a specific event or situation. <laughs> and the idea of, you know, in therapy, they call it maladaptive coping skills, which has its own kind of connotation to it. But this idea of some of these things that we just look at so negatively are also coping skills. And in that moment are, are helping people cope or deal with something that on the surface, you don't understand. Survival traits. That's what we call them in adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional Survival families. Traits. Yeah, I like that better. EPA. And in 12 step, they call them defects. And I don't like that, especially as a woman, like, I don't want to like, okay, you're just awful from the get. And then just, we're going to try to improve on your awfulness this idea of survival traits is an honoring, like you said, of what kept me um, alive, you know, in many yeah. ways, um, that hyper arousal, that risk taking, um, the, you know, the fighting all the time, um, being mouthy, like whatever it was, a lot of that served me. Yeah. I think you had a question in there though, you were going to ask me. Oh, no, I was just, I just got excited. About it. <laughs> it's okay. That's, that's the point. I wanted to bring it up so we could have a conversation on it. I didn't have a specific, I wasn't going to be like, define maladaptive coping skills. How did um, you up in your life? But I like that reframe of survival traits, because I think that's exactly what, what it is. And I was just talking to someone about this the other day. And this powerful idea of, you see addictions, you see behavioral addictions, you see a lot of these uh, these ideas on the outside look really concerning and are concerning, rightfully so. Yep. 
And then the person who's kind of utilizing them or going through that can internalize this negative connotation about who they are as a person. And one of the most freeing quotes that this person who I was talking to shared with me was that these behaviors, these behaviors, these outcomes, these people are not wrong. This is where they're supposed to be based on everything that comes before, right? And this idea of really internalizing that you're not broken, it makes sense this is happening. Look at what happened to you or how you grew up or these things that you went through that Right. cause you to reach out in this way that's destigmatizing right yeah. so um i'm in grad school right now t- uh for clinical social work mm-hmm. and so i actually have the brand new dsm-5 and my professor recently is like um it's a bunch of bullshit and it's really <laughs> helpful and you want to oh. respect it and you want to be really clear about it yeah so i'm really grateful for my professor to do that and i'm looking through these you know disorders you know just right. the name disorder Um, that we have to like, you know, put together a bunch of symptoms and then be like, okay, you have this for insurance, right? So just a little like capitalism, that insurance really dictates a lot of how children up to adults are, um, you know, are, um, you know, have services available to them. And, you know, um, if we diagnose someone, if I'm diagnosed, it goes on my record forever, Right. you know? at least in that, you know, conglomerate of doctors or whatever. So that those environmental forces, right? My environmental forces um, in my home and then in school, there was a lot of bullying. Um, there was a huge socioeconomic gap when I moved out to like a smaller town away from the inner city. And um, there was a lot of bullying, a lot of confusion. Um, and so all of those environmental forces were creating, um, you know, I don't want to say disorder, but, you know, symptoms in me that, you know, became survival traits. And um, that internalized stigma that also, you know, in, in college we're learning about too, that, you know, you hear something enough, it becomes part of your, um, your inner voice, yeah. right? And then being around my family and the chaos, modeling in my research, modeling is one of the most if not the most powerful um, form of learning yeah. um, in, in adult, you know, in, I guess any, I, I guess at any age, um, you know, also like learning empathy, right? Like we can't learn empathy, um, it is said, um, unless we're around other people that have empathy and then I'm learning it and modeling it. Yeah. So um, there was so much I didn't get, but at one point it was like, you know, F it, I'm just going to join in and drink with my family. I'm just going to join in and like smoke pot with my family. I'm just going to join in and, you know, swear like a trucker and like screw everybody F the man, all of that, you know, um, you know, (laughs) fuck the world with middle fingers up. And that's how my family of origin kind of was. And, um, you know, rightly so due to the circumstances of the world and their circumstances, but it was like, if you can't beat them, join them. But I don't really like that phrase too much. I really, I really think it was a choice that I didn't make. It was just the next step for me in survival. Right. You know, I'm just going to be like them, even though there's so many consequences. And I wrote in my diary when I was a little girl, these are all the ways I'm not going to be like them. I have that page somewhere in a bin. Right. And then it became them. <clears throat> and, um, 
And I, you know, I look back and I was like, I was really powerless over it. It was like, what other choice did I have? You know, I think that there's a lot of protective factors that, you know, help people not, I'm not saying everybody that grew up the way that I did becomes me because there's many people I've spoken to that haven't had those experiences and broke the cycle early. Um, <clears throat> but protective factors helped, you know, I had some extended family that modeled for me more healthy behaviors and healthy love and healthy empathy and listened to me and didn't use substances. And, <clears throat> you know, years later, when I made that decision to get into recovery um, and like, you know, stop doing heroin, stop smoking crack and free base, you know, stop drinking in the morning, um, you know, cause I made multiple um, <clears throat> jumps from substances to alcohol in my use um, from 13 to 27. But when I finally came to recovery, um, it was knowing that either I keep using and I do things that would be like shameful beyond belief for me, or I try recovery, right? It was like, I start stealing more. Maybe, um, you know, I start doing things of a sexual nature to get money or drugs. Um, there was this, you know, I had already crossed into that a little bit, but there was this next step because the drugs and the alcohol and the money always ran out. And that was one of the turning points for me was, um, okay, if I'm crazy, like literally that, those are my words. I'm part of the community. I can use it. If I'm crazy, um, or if I'm like so messed up that I'll never be okay. If I get sober, there might be a chance that I can handle that stuff later. You know, like it just, it, it kept coming into me from, from, from people in recovery and meetings that if you get sober, then you can worry about everything else. But like getting sober and stopping all the use was imperative for me to then hit a bottom around five years sober and get my first therapy, you know, but I, I needed to get sober first so that I could find out what was going on with me. And so that I could verbalize what was going to go, what was going on to a therapist. And so I could finally get help. Um, but yeah, so I became like them and there was a lot of shame there and a lot of hatred. And then I hated them so much. I started to hate myself and it was just a loop. You know, whenever I hung out with my family to feel like I was home, um, I would, you know, be re-traumatized and then I would go, you know, harder back into usage. It was just this, this cycle and even existed into my recovery a little bit until I learned more about boundaries. I didn't know what those were. Right. Um, to me, boundaries are a reaction to someone else's behavior. If you do A, then my response will be B. And so the boundary is my response to your action or inaction. Yeah. And so it's a responsibility and it's an action or inaction on my part. It's not, you better not do this and I'm trying to boss you around. It's when you do, this will be my response. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so powerful because I do think people misunderstand how boundaries work because I think that's that latter statement that you made is often how people think it works is you need to do this. Whereas it's more about an action on your part and their responses, their own response to right. you setting that limit and setting a healthy boundary, but it is, Hey, 
that's not going to work for me. So if you continue to do that, here's my response. Here's my responsibility for myself and my action I have to take. Right. How empowering is that? You know, and then, you know, years later being able to define what power was. And, you know, I think about, I've done a lot of research, um, you know, for papers, not in person, but um, studying, um, you know, how to support um, female identified persons in women prison. And um, which is pretty difficult because you're in a traumatic setting trying to deal with trauma. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, understanding how, um, women's studies and psychoeducation around the role of patriarchy um, and misogyny in our world as women um, and how that isn't offered in, you know, incarcerated places, right? Whether right. it's jail or prison and, um, or even in substance use recovery, you know? So uh, it's like, if we're gonna talk about empowering, first we have to talk about power. And I, I love this idea of psychoeducation because I've seen over the years, whether it's with sponsees or friends or, you know, the Dharma community or whatever it is, you know, when, when people are really seeking more information about their lives and they're really excited and, and want to change and there's a lot of motivation there, psychoeducation can just get someone right over the lip and they're like, oh, that's an environmental factor. You mean this isn't my fault? I'm not pathologized as this, right? That pathology, which leads to stigma and then internalized, you know, internalized stigma and how just sometimes knowing something can, you know, help someone find their next, the next part of their path, right? Or their next level of freedom or empowerment. It's really powerful stuff. No, it is. And I, I think added to that, that community around that, hearing from other people. Oh yeah, no, I know what you're talking about. Oh yeah, that... Yeah, I get that. It, it's so powerful in, in combination with that psychoeducation. It's like, oh, all this is starting to make sense to me and, and I'm not separated from humanity. I can right. recognize the human in myself right. and this is something that people go through. All right, let me take that next step or let me get closer to taking that next step. And there's hope for me. Right. Right. Me identifying with other people and this thing that causes these certain effects, let's just say patriarchy, you know, that causes these it's certain a fair, effects. It's a fair thing to say, yeah. Just lay it out there um, in my everyday life. And um, and so knowing that that exists, there, it's like, oh, there's hope for me, right? The opposite of internalized stigma and shame and all of that, like shame, my understanding of shame or the definition that I use is this inherent sense of, you know, that I'm wrong and defective in some way. Yeah. And it's a thought that can be given to me. It can also occur naturally to me, but it's something inside of me. It's not embarrassment, right? It's this internalized shame that I'm not right. Like I'm not okay. And I probably never will be. And so um, flipping that is power, right? And hope and power is knowledge and, and, and that hope that oh, I might have a chance, maybe that elicits some motivation to start Googling or talk to friends about it, or maybe get some mental health services or a sitting practice, whatever it looks like for whoever. Um, hope motivates. Yeah. And that's powerful, especially for a whole system that's just shut down. Like we were talking about before the survival traits, the survival traits give me dopamine hits. 
you know, acting out sexually, um, yelling at people, aggression, using substances, like I'm being in a trauma bond in a relationship and settling for less really in a really, you know, tragic way. Um, you know, all of that like is giving me dopamine hits that are like short and ugh, but not this long-term serotonin connection to community, um, patience, being able to wait, um, like delayed response for like, um, gratification. All of that I didn't have. Those were skills I had to build later, but the survival traits kept me just in it enough that, um, I was able to, you know, not, you know, attempt suicide, which I had a few times, but not, you know, not successfully, thank goodness. And then, um, you know, I do have a little bit of a record, police, uh, law enforcement, police record, Corey, um, but not to the extent where, um, you know, I got in, in a lot of trouble. Um, yeah. And everything we were just talking about with shame, uh, and survival traits, it makes sense because it, it feeds that cycle, right? Like one of the things about these emotions that we often have trouble paying attention to is, is figuring out what is the need that's being met by these emotions or what is the message from them. And I feel like that's the thing about shame that people don't understand is obviously it feels terrible and there's negative cognitions and feelings that come Absolutely. from it. Yep. But it also feeds that survival trait aspect. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about early on is it, it kind of keeps you in the survival mode, even though it feels really terrible. And so honoring that and then moving past that is so important to doing the work, you know? Right. And like having hope for the first time in years, not hope that like someone's going to text me back or like the drug dealers on time or like whatever, or I just mm -hmm. got 40 bucks so I can go out and drink, like not <clears throat> that type of hope, but like real hope that I might be able to have a life and find joy and maybe find, this is before social media, when I got sober, it didn't exist yet. Yeah. But like, you know, knowing that my friends had cool lives, like, and I was never gonna get that. This hope was like the first time chemicals in my body were, um, you know, happening without substances, you know, positive, positive, you know, endorphins. Like I would be in a meeting and like everyone would laugh about like a horrific thing that we all could identify with. And it was just like, oh my gosh, I'm understood. You know, there's hope for me because listen to this person's story. Wow, if I could stay sober with what's going on in my life in like the first three months of recovery, this first year in recovery, it was brutal. Um, wow, they went through all of the, this adversity and they got sober. Wow, there's hope for me. So like as hope, you know, through psychoeducation, through 12 step, later through therapy, or in reading and, you know, Buddhist literature and going on retreats and learning from teachers. As the hope came in, I was like, oh, it's like incentive, right? Oh, here's some carrots. Even though I don't like carrots, but like, here's some carrots. <laughs> and so I'm moving away from the stick, right? right. Um, both methods to get something done, but that hope, I started to feel hope and feel inspired. And I was like, what are all these wicked good feelings? I can't handle it. Um, with moments of like, you know, sadness and memories of like, you know, like in early recovery, like you're putting new memories. This is connected to shame too. Every time I would have a new memory, it would be going over an old, really sad, hard memory. Right. 
And that was really painful when that started to happen, but then it would be replaced, you know? And um, so I would go somewhere and remember like really disappointing someone based on my behavior and my drug use or alcohol use and the things that I said. And I was having this new memory and recovery there. And I was like, man, was I a shithead? I was so hurtful, you know, but I was able to like continue to do that. Um, and that was helpful. It was like, I was watching stages happen. Um, stages of my healing happen, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and, um, and I was watching it. And so that kept me motivated to keep going. Even when hardships started to happen in recovery, I was like, that's all right. Half measures avail me nothing. It's something in the big book, like of Alcoholics Anonymous is like half measures avail me nothing. Okay. I can just go full measure and like, just stay clean today, no matter what happens, you know, um, that was really powerful for me. And I just like hung on to these little bits because, um, I knew it was like, go back to who I thought I was destined to be or become this new person, even though it was terrifying and scary. And there were still elements of shame and survival traits into my recovery days. I like that you shared the, the analogy, which is so often used in, you know, mental health work of the carrot and the stick. And I think it's important to, to notice that it's not a one-to-one kind of ratio with those things. It's, it's often, often weighted more towards the stick because that's how our brain interprets survival and how we have to pay attention right so it's almost like a one to five for every one time that we're motivated by the stick we have to do five motivations by the carrot to equal it out right and i don't know if you read that negativity bias (laughs) well yeah and i'm a i'm a huge fan of uh the buddha's brain i don't know if you've read that i have some excerpts from it but i don't have the book i have his other book resilience He's amazing. I like his, his writing, but uh, I'm going to steal some information from that book and share it because I, you know, I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan, <laughs> so it, it works for me. But in, in the book, he references Jurassic Park and I've used it and kind of made it my own analogy. But the idea is if you're in Jurassic Park and T-Rex is chasing you, yep. right. And you're running through the cafeteria at the park and your favorite meals over there on the right hand side, what are you going to do? Are you going to go eat that meal or are you going to run away from T-Rex? Right. Right. And we have to honor that this was before T-Rex was a good guy in the later Jurassic World movies. Oh, really? I only know the old school ones. Okay. Well, I guess um, even the first one, he, you know, she kind of saves everyone against the raptor. So anyways, I'm getting too in the weeds to the Jurassic Park, but that the idea is, are you going to run from T-Rex are you going to eat your favorite food? Yeah. Most people, unless they're being shitheads, will say, I'm going to run from T-Rex because yeah. I can always have that food later. Yeah. And it's a way he kind of illustrates in the book. That's a natural instinction to, to stay alive. Right. And that's kind of going back to everything we touched upon. Yeah. These survival traits, the shame, the, these driving natures of, well, I'm going to turn inwards. That's how I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to go reach for these outside resources to manage myself. Right. And like, for me being afraid that if I let go of these survival traits, that I'm not going to be prepared when, you know, historically like the saber tooth tiger, the bear, the lion, the tiger, the, you know, T-Rex, when they're coming after me, 
um, if I lose these survival traits that I needed to protect myself from predators when I was a kid, um, period, um, then will I be able to still protect myself? Right. You know, when I move away from that sympathetic nervous system where like it's all fight or flight and like, you know, the T-Rex is coming after me, this danger that's ingrained in my body and my cellular DNA world like that's necessary for my survival, you know, 50,000 years ago, whatever, um, you know, if I shut that off, will I still be protected? And so that was scary, especially get into getting into, um, you know, going on Buddhist retreats and learning about um, different, you know, forms of mindfulness and um, regulation and how the body worked. I, in particular, have always loved Josh Corda. He's Dharma Punk's New York City. He has a podcast. He's amazing. I've been on retreat multiple times with him. And often in his Dharma talks, um, he references psychology and psychologists, which I love, and research <laughs> to back up, you know, original suggestions from the Pali Canon, right? From right. Buddhist literature. And so, um, you know, understanding that that part of psychoeducation was helpful because it was like, oh, I'm prone to this negativity to know this scary stuff and remember it so that it doesn't happen again. Um, and interestingly enough, those survival traits actually didn't quite protect me as much as I thought that they would. Um, because, you know, over the years, it was hard for me to understand what was dangerous and what wasn't sometimes it was really clear sometimes it wasn't um and sometimes it was just like fuck it i'm just gonna do it because there's a carrot like if i hang around with these dangerous people where there's a gun in the room i'm gonna be able to smoke crack for free right yeah that's when it gets really messy yeah yeah because you, know, you start crossing the the beams and it's confusing right laser beams star wars don't cross the beam and, or no, that's Ghostbusters. That's Ghostbusters, yeah. Yeah. I wasn't going to do it because I didn't want to take away, but I'm glad you no, did. No, please, please, please. Um, and so understanding how years of living in flight, fight, freeze world and fawn, I've been learning about fawn a little bit too, but. That's a tricky one. I know, because it could just be a symptom of, of one of the three. But anyway, so understanding that my, that I've always been in that place with adrenaline really running the show and not being able to kick out a sympathetic nervous system, like being chased by a bear or T-Rex, right? Constantly, that was everything. The way someone looked at me, the way someone said something, a post on Facebook, all of those now in our culture here where I'm not being chased by a T-Rex, um, the, the threats are different. They can be social threats, right? Right. Um, and my need to be in community, the social threat is really powerful and really scary. And so, you know, years, uh, you know, my body exhausted from living with those survival traits and in that on alert place, um, dysregulated my system that's there to protect me. Right. And then I'm like, what do I do? What, do, like, what do I do now? And so it was like breathing exercises can help teach your body how to come up with that. <clears throat> um, the polynate, the polyvagal nerve that um, Josh Corda talked about in some of his podcasts, and he would talk about on retreats, like that. And it's it's um, it's connection to our flight fight response. And 
um, learning about that, I was able to see things in pictures yeah. and the metaphors and the discussions about it helped me to understand when things were happening to me, when to apply solution. Right. And then, you know, years in therapy still, a lot of people in recovery from traumatic experiences, um, you know, <clears throat> may still experience this where even as someone really doing a lot of work to move away from that baseline, um, it can be so frustrating when something is triggered in you and something doesn't change when you work so hard to try to make it change. Where I'm still reacting, um, you know, in a you know non-normal way <laughs> um, to stimuli, right? I'm, I'm, I'm you know, approaching stimuli with fight when I don't really need to, or I really want to control a situation when really everything's okay. So this, you know, responding to fear um, in a way that is without my own permission. And so there can be some shame there. So some of my shame work is around things that I do without my own permission that suck, that are ingrained in me from the way that I grew up and that are survival traits that just don't shift um, easily with, you know, whatever prescription you're going to throw at it in terms of like behavioral prescription. Not right. yeah. yeah, that's pretty deep. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. what I think about all the time. No, yeah. But I mean, I, I think I'm right there with you with like all, all this information on polyvagal and embodiment and how the body right. and, the, you know, I, I don't like to think of uh, mind-body connection being separate. Right. My personal philosophy is that you have multiple minds in your body and, you know, they're the same thing. And exactly where you were talking about, your nervous system is a mind of which you make sense of the world with. Right. Your, your brain, your heart, your fascia, your digestive system, yeah. all these things you make sense of the world with. And that's what the definition of a mind is. It's like how you make sense of the world. And then mental health, I love that is how is the health of your mind. Right. And so really there's no difference because the way you view mental health is with your mind. You have multiple minds throughout your body. Mental health and physical health are the same thing. I'm just writing this down because I love that. Yeah. I have this theory I've been working on is like the six minds of mental health and like really breaking things down on how we can adjust emotions or how we can honor emotions through those minds and make small adjustments through polyvagal theory or yeah. breath control or you know, yeah. nutrition and everything like that. So I loved everything that you were saying. It's like, oh, do I jump in here about polyvagal? What, where do I do it? It's a lot, but everybody, you know, people, if they're interested, they could Google. <laughs> yes, for sure. And I'll put some stuff in the show notes too, right just so people can check it out. I One do want to want to say really okay. quick before we move on is um my healing and understanding of you know secular Buddhist practice um the pathway of me first understanding it was was really through the body awareness and where does this feeling sit it was the labeling process concentration okay but it was really through the labeling process and the value system of you know um good, bad, neutral. Um, and, you know, that process really helped me to be like, oh, what am I feeling in my chest? What's happening above my stomach, right underneath my lungs? 
that's a huge that that's a huge source of discomfort for me and a tell for something that I'm feeling. And so really moving into what are my, and my sponsor was helping too, like, what are my feelings? Can I name them? Is it more than just the Brene Brown Atlas to the Heart on HBO right now is so awesome. She defines, I don't agree with all the definitions, but she defines a lot of um, feelings and the power of understanding feelings. And if we misname a feeling, we're often going to react um, to that misnamed feeling instead of what we're actually Go feeling. feeling. Yeah. That's why so and, many people have anger instead of expressing anxiety or sadness. Right. Like anger, shame. sadness, and being pissed. Oh no. Anger, sadness. And there's another one. Um, anyways, there's only a couple of, you know, feelings that I could have listed because I didn't have that vocabulary growing up. So really coming into healing for me was through the body. And I know that you love that body stuff. Yeah. And so that was really powerful for me to begin a relationship instead of being in like, just in my mind, feeling like I'm two feet ahead of myself all day long. And just the, the monkey brain going and not really getting into like Santosha, this, you know, idea in yogic practices where there's a center of me that is all knowing and calm and knows things are going to be okay. Even if I lose my life. And this place, this inner resource that I can go to that becomes a place of calm and wisdom and peace or rest, mm. right? So all of that was important to begin to develop that place that, you know, is my idea of, you know, instead of using God or higher power and traditional 12-step culture and literature, that was something that I needed to develop over time through my body. So then I wasn't just in my head. I right. was able to fully experience the world and be able to trust what my body was saying to me. Butterflies were actually danger. Oh, look at him. I got butterflies. No, you're being warned, Michaela, <laughs> that, um, that this person really resembles a lot of people in your youth and to stay away. And I'm not saying that is the same for everybody or right for everybody, but to me, that was something important um, in learning about how to move out of survival traits and move towards uh, healthy decisions that were right for me. Yeah. I mean, I think everything you're saying makes so much sense and developing these internal resources are so important because you can turn towards those even in any aspect. You don't have to go get something. You don't have to reach out to someone. You have this internalized resource for yourself to move yourself forward and find control and find peace and calmness everything you're right. talking about right that actually leads to like my next question that i was thinking about <laughs> um hold on i'm just taking a note about what i think the episode title yeah, should I be <laughs> I, mean, I think i'm gonna call it moving through survival traits is gonna be this episode's title Ooh. so i think it, it fits really really well to what we're talking about um about so i was really interested about this 12 12 12 step <laughs> community and that secular secularism and humanistic kind of approach because i know there is that concept of god that's kind of built into this 12 <laughs> 12 step program uh so i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and how to not how you've navigated that or or what's resonated with you so it
It's a source of controversy. Okay. Um, I mean, if you don't want to talk about it too, no, I, I no, get that I, because I no, understand. We're going in. This is okay. really, really important because I feel like a lot of people have left 12 step and, you know, perhaps lost their lives because they weren't allowed to be there without a theistic view. Okay. And um, even, um, you know, Bill Wilson, um, who was one of the co-founders of Alcoholics Anonymous in the 30s, he wrote um, some literature in a pamphlet called Faith. Um, back then they wrote pamphlets, I believe it was in the 60s. And he basically said, look, our spiritual pride um, as people that believe in God and talk about higher power may actually be killing some of our members and people might not be coming back if our spiritual pride and this understanding that you, you know, this idea that you have to believe in God or you'll never get sober and you'll never get well, that that idea um, is hurting our members. And we need to be really um, mindful of that. And it's our responsibility to support any alcoholic, specifically alcoholic, any alcoholic that we're helping, um, you know, if they don't believe in our higher power, then we support them and help them find resources to find their own higher power. Not my words, this understanding came from, you know, you know, Bill understanding that this was becoming a problem. And especially in the Northeast, um, you know, it's a little bit different out West and other parts of the country and overseas. But particularly in this area, um, there's a huge concentration of, you know, practicing Christian people. Right. Um, and so, you know, my sponsor is and I, you know, sponsor women that are and that's wonderful. And we should all get a seat at the table equally in a room that we share together where all of our understandings of a spiritual um, replacement for alcohol, um, you know, has a voice and is accepted. And so over the years, you know, my, my sponsor, I think I started with her around, I've had multiple sponsors, but the sponsor that I've worked with the longest since 2005, she really encouraged me um, to find wording and find, you know, spiritual pathways that, you know, basically resources and refuges that, um, replace this idea of, you know, um, using a deity instead. And, um, and we, you know, over time, that was like five years sober, right? Everything's in terms of, you know, and then eight years sober was when I went on my first retreat. And I was like, oh, the teacher's sober. Oh, my goodness. And so I got more information. And um, there's also, um, there were atheists that actually helped uh, write the book and edit the book in the 30s when the book Alcoholics Anonymous was written. And to us, it's like, oh, you know, as a secular person, oh, look at all this, you know, reference to, to God. And actually, that was really open-minded um, for um, the 30s to right. say God as you understand him, right? Instead right, of yeah. God. And it came from, you know, the Oxford groups, which were a religious Christian group, you know, um, that's what 12-step came out of. And so in the back of the book, I found um you know in the spiritual experience it says some people have found an inner resource <gasps> wording that allows is. me <laughs> there it is. allows yeah. me to be in recovery um an inner resource that they identify as their higher power and i was like i have to grow that inner resource 
you know, how do I do that? And an inner resource isn't my monkey brain that's making decisions, that's using survival traits and leading me back to pain. This inner resource is something deeper and cultivated, and it's going to be a place I go to for refuge and for resources. And then also this idea where I feel like I'm talking to like a newcomer or like some of my sponsees when I start working with them that are atheist or agnostic or um, humanist, whatever, because this is so important to just have this language and have these, um, these ideas modeled, right? And having permission, like you get to be here if you want. You know, it's not the only game in town. 12 Step's not the only game in town. Um, I have friends that have, you know, are recovering from substances and other um, programs. But um, this idea where um, I have to grow and invest in this, in this replacement, right? And so it also includes the outside resources. God, that's not, you know... Um, like me going to the beach restores me and like brings me back to a regulated state. Um, you know, reading literature, reading books about how to be human, you know, just expanding this knowledge outside of, you know, just, just 12 step. Um, what works for me, therapeutic services, having friends, building a community, being of service, this idea, um, you know, 12 step is really focused on this idea of generosity, healing, this, you know, lifetime of craving that never got us what we wanted. Right. But when we're generous and participating community, all of those needs are actually met. Yeah. Beautiful yeah. idea. It goes that. back to polyvagal too, right? To really be in a sympathetic, right. not sympathetic, but in a nervous system state, parasympathetic, where you can give, right. you can regulate through that. Right. And so like, understanding okay resources resources what are they for why do people use god why do people use higher power why are people going to use resources for wisdom come back to a peaceful place for a you know perspective change calling a friend hey this is what i'm thinking hey have you thought about it this way like that involvement in community um you know that's all really powerful stuff and you know developing that inner resource that you know i found through um you know, meditation practice and body awareness um, and activities. And um, yeah, and so, you know, 12 step essentially is this CBT model where you go into the 12 steps and you look at all the ways that you, you view things and how all of those ways you view things lead you to survival traits that don't really actually get you what you want. And so how can we look at this differently and see through the delusion and then find actions that really support that, that, that healthy mindset and, you know, getting, getting what we, getting what we need. And so this idea in 12 step is really um, changing the behavior and understanding that the behavior change will lead to cognitive change. Right. So that's a really psychological view of 12 step, but I use yeah, it, I love it though. papers over no, the I think it's, 10 years. It's right on point. And I, I don't think I've ever heard it explained that way. So Thank you. Brian. That's what it is with the dose of spirituality in, in whatever way that looks like for a person. But a lot of it is about healing and looking for more information outside of me alone sitting on a couch. So I need more information to grow, be motivated, find hope, heal all of the stuff that we've been talking about. I can't do it alone. For me, I couldn't do it alone just on a couch by myself, you know. That's awesome. Thank you so much for, for 
breaking that down. I, I was exactly what I was hoping to get out of it. <laughs> and so another thing just to add, if for anybody listening that's interested, um, there's secular 12-step um, all over the internet and there's Google, uh, not Google, Zooms all over the world. I found a bunch of meetings uh, during the COVID pandemic that really helped me to put more language to being a secular person in recovery. And secular 12-step is really popular and it's happening all over the place. So, and it's, um, there's a couple of really great books. Um, I don't know where they are right now, but there's a couple of really great uh, secular uh, recovery books that, you know, help to modify the 12 steps for um, a more secular view. Um, and it's really easy to do because it's really, a set of principles, 12 steps are a set of principles that we want to bring into our lives. And you can do that in many different ways, you know? Um, and so it's controversial because folks get uncomfortable when I talk at meetings about it. Yeah. Um, and I get it, you know, there could be some fear there. There can be like, oh, don't, you know, you know, reinvent the wheel or whatever. Um, but it's also really important that individuals that identify as secular that we don't feel um like we don't belong there right you know um and that we are you know respected and don't have to change our worldview based on um other people's ideas right so the book really has a lot of clear messaging to not be hierarchical and to be caring and to be friendly and to be loving and to let people follow what's right for them um, there's really actually a lot of, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, suggestions <laughs> to avoid that codependent idea, you know, that's right. often understood through Al-Anon where like, we need to fix people. We need to control people. You have to be like me, you have to do this. And the book really warns against that when it describes how to work with other people. Um, so if you look for it, it's there. I think the culture can just be really powerful. Right. And um, we have to, you know, I have to brace against the culture and make sure I step out of the culture and um, offer a voice, not of resistance, but of inclusion. I think that's really important. It's inclusion. Inclusion. Yes. I love my recovery. You know? Yeah. And I think it's such an important part that if you feel like you're excluded, you're not right. captive. You're not really getting the most out of it that you can. It's connected to shame. Right. I'll never get this unless I believe in, you know, A, B, and C. And it's that fine, you know, F it, I'll go back out. Yeah. And it reinforces that like, uh, oh, you know, I'm sitting with people who are going through the same thing, but I'm not accepted. I'm still broken. Even right. in we this We don't have aspect. time for that. We don't have time. We, we need the doors open. Right. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm going to shift gears a little bit and we're, we're coming to the end of the podcast. So I'm going to hit you with the hard hitting questions because Everything we've been talking about, it's been so easy to talk about and, oh, right. and figure out. Um, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? So I was cheating and thinking about this the other day um, and this morning. And I think for me, my superpower would be to um, speak to people after they have already passed. In particular, because you know, remembering grandparents as a child who died, you know, passed when I was, you know, rather young, under 15. Um, and I, I guess one was like under 20. And then my father who passed when I was six, um, I'd love to be able to talk to them as an adult. 
and like even stand next to my dad and be like oh are we close to the same height what does he smell like are you proud of me like what does he smile like um like how do you tell a joke all of that I wish um not I mean I don't even know if people are still around after they pass you know I don't necessarily identify with that but I, I wish there was that I wish I could talk to you one more time piece and to talk to my grandmothers who had so much wisdom, but came from generations where you don't talk right. about what's going on, especially as a woman, um, because you could be labeled hysterical, crazy, all of these, you know, um, oppressive um, words and um, stigma on women, you know, back then. So I wish that I could go back and or I wish that I could talk to people after they're dead or go back in time and talk to them, just having that one more time. Um, that's awesome. I like that. And then what do you think your actual real life superpower is? Energetically and dramatically explaining things to people in a way they can understand. Yeah. Which I love to do, which is essentially connecting people to resources, which I also love to do so it's like what what's your passion what makes you feel alive and then go do that for work and so that makes me feel alive even though I haven't got paid for recovery in the last 17 years my learning experiences and helping other people with it um and offering that to other people I love that and explaining like the psychoeducation um I, I think that I'm good at that well, anyone listening to this point probably <laughs> knows that at this point, right? That's my jam. We, we've gone through <laughs> through that. And, and that also hits on, you know, the Eightfold Path, right? Livelihood, right? This idea right. that you're following that passion. So that's right. awesome. Well, I was about to end, but there's one more thing I want to ask you. Oh, what? Right. Tell me. So obviously, because this is your superpower, so I'll be intrigued to see how you're able to do this. If you could condense what we were talking about today into 30 seconds, minute, not, not a pitch, so no pressure on pitching this, but like if you condense the message of what we're talking about today, what do you think you would want the listeners to lead this podcast with? So as we make these choices to grow and heal from wherever we came from, whatever it looks like, substance use, abuse, chaos, um, whatever. Um, as we move away from that into the healing place, um, you know, being connected to a community that's right for us and um, understanding, understanding these healing process, processes um, mentally, physically, and finding resources to really, really help us to define in a language what's going on with us and what healing looks like for us. I think that that's really powerful. And, um, you know, also understanding um, that a lot of the stuff that, you know, has made us who we are wasn't, wasn't our choice. It was, you know, put on us, but we can heal from that. And, um, and regardless of what resources we choose to, um, you know, begin to heal and seek relief in, um, you know, that is really our decision and our decision alone and using our voice, um, you know, if that feels right to us to, you know, bravely start to go against 
the grain and share, um, you know, modalities and ideas that um, are powerful for us and are life changing, go for it. You know, and I think that we didn't talk too much about this. It was just like the kind of overall behind the scenes, but community is really powerful. And it's so, been so helpful for me to learn in community, make mistakes in community and be forgiven in community, uh, forgive other people in community and learn how to be in this like broad community kind of family-like system where, um, you know, I can practice, um, you know, in ways that um, no matter what, I'm going to be accepted and that I belong. And I think that that's really helpful for people, especially with complex trauma, which we didn't really talk about, but we well, were talking about it. I mean, that's a DSM-5 thing. It's not even in there. It's so, not. It's, it's so not. that's that reinforces our love-hate relationship <laughs> to the right. DSM, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if I got that, but. I think so. I think so. It came across to me at least. So okay. as long as I got it, I think it's good. <laughs> who, Steven, who knows? It's so good to talk to you and to you see too. you. And I hope your family's well and um, you. you enjoy the summer. Thank you so much for having me on and giving me enough, another opportunity to put voice to things that I'm really passionate about and to um, you know continue to hone my language and how I express um, my, um, my path. So thank you for that. Thank you very much. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our podcast. If you or someone you know would like to be on the podcast, please outreach to us at info at the Promethean Project.org. If you want to learn more about the Promethean Project or if you would like to donate to our cause, you can reach us at the prometheanproject.org if you really do enjoy this podcast please share with your friends like our posts on social media on instagram and on facebook and please leave us a review on apple podcasts or any podcast app that you like to listen to again thank you for taking a listen and remember that the most important step is always the next one